you're struggling to attract new staff or your team is experiencing burnout, pick up your phone and call Guardian Vets. Through virtual team solutions like after-hour triage, daytime virtual receptionists, callbacks, and telemedicine, Guardian Vets can help you have happy staff, happy clients, and a thriving business. Go to www.guardianvets.com and check Veterinary Success Podcast in the Where Did You Hear About Us section to get a free consultation and receive 50% off your first month of service. Don't wait. Check out guardianvets.com now. You've heard me talk about the opportunity in urgent care. So VetCheck believes in the power of your capacity to influence your patients, patient families, and be a leader in your community. How they do this is by giving you the freedom to take ownership of your future to make the biggest impact in your patients' lives. They equip you with a turnkey opportunity to take action on the dream through a unique pathway to owning your own VetCheck Pet Urgent Care Center franchise. They provide a solution to remove obstacles like competing against corporate dollars in the community that you want to be in and having access to a hospital ownership, medical directorship, and more. Also, you become a partner along the journey. A vet check pet urgent care center franchise is the answer. If you're interested, check out episode number 80, where I talked to Dr. Siva and he shares more about his story and the opportunity. So if this sounds like something that's interesting to you, reach out and learn how you can own your own vet check pet urgent care center franchise today by visiting vetcheckforpets.com, which again is vetcheckforpets.com. Welcome to the Veterinary Success Podcast. I'm your host, Isaiah Douglas. Uh, this is a later recording than normal. Apologize for being a little late in getting this one out on a Monday evening versus Sunday morning. But, uh, you know, summers are busy, out doing things. So had a, an awesome weekend and wanted to spend a little bit more time digging into some information to make this the best episode possible. So with that, um, hopefully you enjoy it. There's going to be a, a lot of I think nuance and extra research that that's here. And I think it's a topic that you probably haven't heard about when you dig into investing very often. And you've heard me talk about inflation and inflation certainly is here. One of the best performing assets year to date has been commodities. And there's an old adage in kind of Wall Street or investing lexicon that is there's always a bull market somewhere and a bull market meaning there's returns to be had and commodities have absolutely been that for 2022. So as of this recording, if you look from the beginning of the year through last Friday, which is uh, June 24th, the Bloomberg Commodities Index, which is just a broad-based index of different commodities, uh, is up 22.33% versus the S&P 500, which is the U.S. stock market, being down 17.25. That's a massive spread in difference in returns. One, you're up having an awesome year. One, you're kind of feeling a little bit of, a, of the pain. Yet, here's another really fun stat. Before we get carried away, like, hey, commodities are the greatest thing since sliced bread. Um, the Bloomberg Commodity Index over the last 25 years has given you an annualized return of 0.06 versus the S&P 500 at 7.96. So literally for 25 years, you've made no money. Slightly, slightly more. I think it, it comes out to being like 5% return for 25 years versus the S&P being up hundreds and hundreds of percent. So the last 10 years, if you would have just owned it, you would have lost money holding commodities. So again, why bother, right? The stock market always goes up, all these different things, except in a year like 2022. So these are all questions you should be asking. And like a cook in the kitchen, I'd always want to have the maximum amount of ingredients and, and items to cook with, um, the right cookware, seasonings, all those things versus the bare bones. And I think anyone else would be the same. So as we'll discuss, you maybe don't want to just simply buy and hold commodities, see returns. Um, but I do want to discuss why you should think about having them in a portfolio and why it makes it resilient and robust. And I want to tie data to that, right? Like you all are 
far, far, far too smart to just be like, hey, trust me, right? Like, let's bring some some data with it. And I think that'll be a, a fun little research. Also, there is going to be a lot of things in the show notes. So don't get intimidated. Some of them are written. Some of them are video. Great, great content. If you're interested in this, if you're not, and you're just like, hey, that's great, cool. Um, again, hopefully you learned something from this episode. So I want to get two terms out of the way initially, and it'll help as we dive in more and more. So first, like, heck, what the heck are commodities? So if you think about commodities, they're raw materials or primary agricultural products that can be bought and sold. So you can break them down into kind of four categories. Energy, so crude oil, heating oil, natural gas, and gasoline. Metals, precious, silver and gold, non-precious, copper and palladium. Livestock, so think lean hogs, pork bellies, live cattle, feeder cattle, agriculture, coin, corn, corn, soybeans, wheat, rice, coffee, cocoa, coffee, have that in there twice, cotton and sugar. I don't know why coffee's not in there twice. I promise that, but it is there. So, and then futures contracts. So I think this is important. And this is again, a whole area that you could spend a lot of time in, but just again, standalone futures contracts are a standardized legal contract to buy or sell something at a predetermined price for a specific delivery at a specific time in the future between parties, not yet known to each other. The asset transaction is usually a commodity or financial instrument. So a couple quick things to understand about financial um, futures contracts. So future contract is needed to buy and sell, um, again, with a fixed price, fixed delivery. They have an expiration date, which is the execution. They can be available for any asset, such as an indice, commodity, currency, and they are important to the markets as they can provide liquidity and stability. And I think that is another interesting thing to, to understand. So I'm going to talk about futures and I might talk about commodities, commodities more so, but just futures to understand the difference there. So there's a paper written called Commodities for the Long Run by Ari Levine, Yao Hu Wu, which I hope I said right, and Matthew Richardson in 2016. It dove into the long-term data around commodities and are they attractive to long-term investors. So they did a sample size of going from 1877 to 2015. I think that's ample time to say long. Again, that's outside of most of our investing horizon, but some really good, interesting research. And what they found was commodity futures index indices have, on average, been positive over the long run. The evidence supports commodities as a potentially attractive asset class in portfolios of stocks and bonds. So this is a really detailed research piece that they did, and I am not doing it justice with just that snippet. But again, it's in the show notes. You can read way more about it. Um, the work is expansive, and if they heard me share this, they probably want to smack me because of the amount of work they did, which was fantastic and amazing. But I think the key thing here is commodities can be a good thing to own, and they are helpful to a stock and bond investor, which is the vast majority of U.S. investors, right? The vast majority of U.S. investors, since I see a lot of investment portfolios from people that are outside of, of you know, Vincere and the work that we do, if they come to us or they want insights or, or have conversation— what, what they have is they have an 80% allocation, basically, so 70 to 80% in the U.S., and usually somewhere between 60 and 90% in U.S. stocks. That's pretty much what most people own. It's stocks and bonds. I want more risk. I own more stocks. I want less risk. I own more bonds. Oh, wait, 2022 happened, and both stocks and bonds have gone down together. So that's where you know something else, again, like I talked about at the top, commodities can actually help returns in a year when everything else kind of stinks. So let's look at the um, data, and I say look at because I'm going to read a little bit to you. But the they looked at the 60-40 portfolio, which is 60% stocks, 40% bonds, and then adding 
the ability for commodities to be held or go long short, which means they make money going up or down. And looking at that, comparing the returns, um, the mean returns of that. And so if you look at the full sample, both commodities and long short commodities are the same amount as the 60-40 portfolio over that whole entire period. Now, what's interesting is when inflation is up, unsurprisingly, commodities helped. And when it was a recession, that's when commodities hurt the most. So in times of expansion, it was better. The volatility or the up and down movements, that in inflation down was actually improved. And, and then when the market was growing, it was also better as well. So inflation down, it was better. Inflation up, it was better. It was the recessionary, recessionary periods that was the most hurtful. The other thing, the full sample, and so there's a, a ratio called the Sharpe ratio, which basically looks at, if I'm gonna take more risk, I better be getting more return. So a higher number is better. And so over the full sample, so from 1877 through 2015, 60, 40 portfolio, 0.42. Commodities were 0.45 and 0.47. So slightly, slightly better. Now, when you looked at it from 1946 through 2015, it actually was slightly better. It even improved more. So as kind of financial markets, I think, developed a little bit more, it's hard for me to justify owning commodities from 1877 to early 1900s um, and say, hey, look, see, long-term investors, you're, you're rewarded. So in a little bit more of a, a what I would consider a modern time frame uh, certainly helps. And that shows in the Sharpe ratio, which I think is an important one to look at. So one of the things to think about is, okay, great. So this Bloomberg Commodity Index says own commodities. This research paper says own commodities. Cool. I'll go buy you know, a commodity ETF and I'm good. So word of caution, and this is where people get into trouble, and that's why I wanted to obviously record this podcast as well. Commodity ETFs are good at tracking short-term moves of commodities, but lose effectiveness the longer the ETF is held. So again, ETFs, exchange-traded fund, for those that haven't listened to the earlier episodes in this series, um, it's just the wrapping around it. Commodity mutual funds are going to struggle similarly, but both are going to be better at owning and tracking short-term moves versus longer-term moves. So if you remember the episode that I talked about, kind of that tactical trend or using trends to, to minimize losses, that's one way to own commodities is adding trend. And we're going to talk about trend a little bit here in a second. But the way historically that Vincere has used commodity ETFs is in that trend model where it's not, hey, we're going to own this for 10 years. We might own this for 10 months. And that can be something that is beneficial. And so that's just important to, to get out of the way is I'm not advocating going out and buying an ETF and just holding that forever. And we'll touch on other alternatives and other things here in a second. So there's an issue with the tracking, and this is due to a funny word called contango. So this is not a dance move. It's a situation where the future prices of a commodity is higher than the spot price. So spot is what I'm paying today and the future price, obviously being going back to those future contracts. That's why I brought that up earlier. And contango usually occurs when an asset price is expected to rise over time. This results in an upward sloping forward curve. For investors like you and me, it means it ate up our money and we didn't get exactly what we thought we were gonna get. And so there's this, this roll when they buy new contracts and when they keep rolling it, basically what they're doing is they're selling low and buying high and they're replacing these contracts over and over again with more expensive ones. And what that does is that eats into your returns where you think, ah, oh, Oil's going up. I'm going to buy this oil ETF and boom, I get it. That's a trading tool. Those commodity ETFs that you may see 
are a trading tool. And so if you're going to trade it and you have a, a thought process of, okay, it's a trend and I'm going to buy it and I'm going to sell it. Great. But if you think, Hey, I think oil is going to go up over the next five years and I buy this, I think you're going to be sad when you look at the return on that because of the way the product is structured itself. And I know this is getting in the weeds a little bit early on in this conversation, but promise stay with me. It's going to get better as far as suggestions on how to, how to address some of this. So I don't think it's good advice to anyone. They should just, Hey, buy long only buy and hold commodity exposure. A quick look at that strategy versus other asset classes show it's tough to do. A lot of times you're going to have lower returns, like I talked about with the Bloomberg Commodity Index over 20, 20 years, 25 years, basically earn nothing. And it's going to have high volatility because the, the volatility of commodities are all over the place. And hey, we love volatility when it's to the upside and we're making money. Volatility, the, the downside is tough. So that's not a good combination of health for your portfolio. And you might not get the inflation protection you want from that commodity exposure by holding it over the long period. Because again, inflation is going up over time. And we've had inflation over the last 25 years. So why didn't the commodity index with Bloomberg make me money? And again, it goes back to the kind of contango and some of these other things that are nuances in the way it's traded. So you'll want to use it in something like the trend following model that I talked about in previous episode 137 or own it in a managed futures or commodity trading advisor CTA. And that's where you can see the benefits. And so you might be saying, okay, what is this managed futures or CTA you are describing? So a managed future strategy is typically done by a professional money manager and it's a diversified portfolio of futures contracts. Okay. That's pretty simple. We understand commodities. We understand futures contracts. So all these different contracts of corn and soybeans and oil and gas and currencies and all the, okay. Yep. Got it. So what they're going to do is they're going to be systematic, likely computer driven mechanical strategies based on rules and research for when to buy and sell. There are discretionary funds, but I'd highly recommend the systematic ones. One common unifying characteristic is these managers trade highly liquid, regulated, exchange-traded instruments in foreign exchange markets. The investments will do what is in favor or out of favor. The success of the strategy is all based on trends. So it's going to sound a little bit kind of like the episode 137. There's slight differences because one thing is that managed futures can make money on the long side, so something going up, or the short side when things go down. And that's really hard to do, but that's what makes these... Um, the an allocation of this kind of asset class or this type of investment really beneficial. Um, and usually these funds have something called value at risk or VAR, and they may run those at higher or lower level. So again, in the weeds, but that's something that is important to understand of like, okay, how much value are they going to put at risk and how much of a loss can I take? And there's nothing wrong with having a high VAR because if you're going to put your money into this type of investment strategy, you want it to go out and be aggressive and give you the characteristics of owning and getting this diversification because they are really extremely diversified in many markets. Usually it's over 50. So again, it's going to own currencies. It's going to own commodities. It's going to own stocks. It's going to own fixed income or um, interest rates. And there's all these different things that blend together. And it's really, really a powerful thing. So what they're going to do is let their winners run and cut their losses short. So there's lots of trades that are going to be start, stop, start, stop. But when it does win, uh, it makes a lot of money typically. So you want to see these trends. And usually one or two trends make all the money for these type of strategies, which seems weird, but they have the ability to just really make a lot of money when you see this big move. In 2022, it's been energy and interest rates. So interest rates have shot up as aggressively as they ever have. I think going back into you know early 1900s and energy has been on a tear. And so both of those have been huge boons to manage futures or CTA strategies. 
So managed futures gives you great, and I mean great diversification, as no one is going to own lean hogs, the Mexican peso, you know, is it going up or down or heating oil as an investment? We're not going to go out and do those things as individual investors. But also in periods of a bear market, which is when the S&P is down 20% or more, managed futures is one of the best asset classes to own. You can look at the evidence historically, and it shows that, and I'm going to get to that here in a second. But I want to share some different quotes from various research, and again, I'll link to as much of this as I can into the show notes for those that are interested, because it is something that is non-intuitive, and it seems like it shouldn't work. But again, this has been around for quite a while. It's done really well. And again, if we see a regime shift of all of a sudden, hey, higher inflation, lower growth, this can be a really nice add to a portfolio. So here's a couple different quotes. I've referred to managed futures in prior posts as humility embodied in an investment approach. I love that quote. Woody Wigman. Success with managed futures is more likely if there are market dislocations, but defining where there will be a crisis is fundamentally difficult. Crises are infrequent and usually unanticipated. Boom. Perfect. The reason you want to own managed futures is because it, when shit hits the fan, this is there to be able to take advantage of it and protect a portfolio, but there's no way that you're going to know when you're going to need it, right? It's like, hey, I need earthquake insurance because I live in California, but I'm only going to get it when the earthquake starts. It's like, no, 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 no. You don't know when that's going to happen. Managed futures are structured to be non-predictive. Managed futures models generally do not try to predict trends, but just identify them and then invest. That is why I really like them as well. So again, going back to systematic, unemotional, find trends, invest in them doesn't matter what the trend is, they can invest in them. And I think that's great. Investors should play the odds that show trend following or managed futures work over the long run and has been consistently positive across asset classes. And that is really, really cool as well. So what does the data show us? I, I promise you I'd get into some data. So Hearst, Oi, and Peterson in a 2017 paper uh, found that managed futures have generated anything from flat to meaningly positive during the top 10 largest drawdowns of a 60-40 portfolio since the late 1800s. And some examples of the worst quarters in the stock market versus the BTOP 50 index, which is the 50 managed futures managers. Um, I'm going to read those, and then I'm going to give you the S&P 500 uh, historical returns to kind of show this, right? So this paper was done in 2017. I actually looked at the COVID crash in the first quarter of 2020, and it actually played out the same way there as well. So let's get into it. So Black Monday, fourth quarter, 1987. S&P 500 for the quarter was down 23.23%. Ouch. Managed futures, BTOP index up 16.88. COVID crash, Q1 2020. We've all remember that. S&P 500 down 19.43%. BTOP 50 index up 2.69%. Terrorist attack in the World Trade Centers, third quarter um, 2001, down 14.99% for the S&P. Managed futures, BTOP 50 index up 4.12. Dot-com bubble burst, fourth quarter 2000, down 8 0.09 versus managed futures up 19.78 and the credit crisis or subprime mortgage losses fourth quarter of 2007 down 3.82 and the btop 50 index was up 3.02 so when you see stocks and bonds struggle like 2022 managed futures shine so they are a wonderful complement so let's play a little game and this was part of the research that i wanted to have for the podcast to make sure I could have in front of me, because I think it's interesting where people are going to ask, well, okay, um, how does it look? So what if you did a 60-40 blend of S&P 500 and managed futures over the last 20 years, so 2002 through 2021, 
versus 100% exposure to the S&P 500 and the old 60-40 stock bond mix. So 60% S&P 500, 40% U.S. aggregate bond index. So the S&P 500 since uh, 2002 to uh, 2021 was 9.46 annualized. So almost 10%, almost 9.5%. Awesome. The 60-40 portfolio was 7.71 annualized. Again, great returns, right? And these are all nominal returns. It's not after inflation. And I know I keep drilling it into people's heads to think about real returns. So after inflation, but again, I didn't uh, have time to factor in the inflation piece. That's going to take a little extra step. So I'm just giving you the nominal returns. But again, it all um, will still be applicable as far as the story in the message here. So the blend, 60% stocks, so S&P 500, 40% managed futures, 9.79% um, annualized. So better than the S&P 500, and much better than the 60-40 portfolio. The other kicker, the coolest part, is your worst annual return, negative 10.72% versus a negative 36.81% for 100% in the S&P 500. That's pretty cool, right? And yet no one owns managed futures. So why do managed futures struggle and why doesn't everyone own them? So tell me, Isaiah, what is this reason that you're the first person or maybe the only person that talks about managed futures. And one of the managers that, that we use at Vincere, um, when I talked to them and was getting to know them, they're like, you're 31 and talking about managed futures, you, you're like a unicorn. Like no one talks about these that are younger because it's all, hey, just own stocks, just own VTI, just, just go to Vanguard and buy this. And again, that's not in my nature and something that I was like, well, you know, the, the math kind of works on, on why you might want to own these. So, you know, let's talk. And it's interesting, right? Like, so the reason that most people don't own them is they tend to march their own beat and it's going to be painful to own them. You're going to be like, why the heck do I own this stupid thing? You'd be like, this makes no sense. People don't understand why they own them. And then when they don't do as well, they get rid of it. And that is human nature, right? The thing that stinks in your portfolio, you sell and you buy the thing that did good. And so if we see a trendless market, so just choppy, it's up and down, kind of all over, no real trends, it's going to struggle. But it was a fantastic performer in the great financial crisis. Many funds were up 50 plus percent, right? So you see the S&P down, you know, close to 37, max pain at 55. And these type of funds, managed futures, were up almost an exact, you know, opposite side of that. And a lot of money managers pushed that performance to their sales team and said, hey, you need to sell managed futures. This is great. Look at this, you know, slick flyer. So in 2009, 2010, everyone was pushing managed futures on financial advisors to then turn around and sell to their clients only to watch them struggle for the next three, five, six, seven years. And so all the advisors that didn't do their homework, had no idea why they owned them, lost money, over-promised to clients, clients got pissed off and they swarm off and said, man, we missed all this stock market recovery. Look at all this money we could have made. This is so stupid. Who wants to own managed futures? This is dumb. The guy that I started working with at Merrill Lynch had that exact story. And he told me, never bring me a managed futures fund as an idea. It's always a no. I will never own them. I will never touch them again. And there's a lot of what I would call older seasoned um, advisors in the industry that will never talk about them. And I think that actually is a great reason that you want to own them because your benefit is that there's certain people that won't touch them, even though they've done fantastic year to date. So they're up managed futures depends on what, you know, manager you want with an index they're up somewhere between 15, 10, seven. You know, I've seen, you know, one of the different managers 
that we've used is up, you know, 45 to 46% this year. So there are, you know, a variety and range of uh, returns, but they've been positive. And again, the S&P is down, you know, negatively solidly. So any positive performance here to date, people like. And so I think all of a sudden managed futures are going to be interesting again. And I wish I could have recorded this back in 2020 or 2019 because I still was talking about these things then. It just hasn't been a topic yet. But I talked with a client earlier this year and she was actually the one that kind of sparked me to want to record these type of episodes and get into more nuance around these different ideas because I mentioned managed futures and she was like, I'm really smart. And she is really smart. Um, she's like, I have no idea what you just said. So I was like, I need to spend some time, record these type of things and give people the ability to, to go back and find good research if they want to dig in. But you don't have to if you don't want to, right? So you can still own your stocks and bonds and you don't have to touch managed futures. Like there's no requirement to do it. it. Just the math works and it will continue to work in the future if you believe in the idea of diversification because S&P 500 and bonds struggle in similar environments managed futures thrive in those environments. So it kind of makes sense that when everything hits the fan, you want the other thing to work and managed futures happens to be that thing. And so if you own it and you can rebalance over time, so managed futures stinks, managed futures stinks, managed futures stinks, all of a sudden does well, well, then you can be going back and buying your stock exposure in the periods of weakness. And I think that's the whole beauty of diversification is always saying, I'm sorry. of saying, darn it, I wish I would have owned 100% of that thing. This year, you know how many people would love to own 100% managed futures? Lots. You know how many people own 100% managed futures? Only the managed futures funds. <laughs> That's it. No one owns 100% managed futures. I would never own 100% managed futures. What you want to think about, though, is you need to make a managed futures part of your allocation and not try to trade in and out of it. And I think that's the biggest thing. You can't say, oh, I'm going to allocate to this for you know a couple of years and we'll see how it goes. It has to be no, I believe that there is rationale for why I want to own this. I'm going to own it. I'm going to hold it. And I'm going to make it part of my portfolio. And that is hard to do. It's easy for me to sit here and say, and then it's hard to be like, oh, okay, five years, not really getting a lot of returns. You're making, you know, two to 5% and the market's up 20. Are you still going to hold it? You might say yes, but most people won't. And I think that's the, the key thing. So some of the key characteristics of managed futures as we begin to wrap up, globally diversified, it's non-correlated, which means it marches to its own beat. It's highly liquid, it's transparent, and you can make money on the long or short side. And I think that's part of the reason why it's a really nice complement to other allocations where most investors only have long exposure, which means market needs to go up in price. So the natural question likely is, how do I access managed futures and how much do I allocate to them? So you can find them in mutual funds or ETFs. You can also find them in hedge funds directly. Um, for most people listening, I would say you probably don't want to have that much exposure where you need to go to the hedge fund level because it's usually six figures plus. Um, there are some really good opportunities where there is you know, a, a manager that we will leverage and use for certain type of clients where it is a 0% management fee and it's all performance-based. So literally it's, hey, if we don't make you money and we don't hit that next high watermark, so if you have $100,000 and it goes to 120 and then it goes back down for years, they don't make a dime right? So I, I like the idea that they can put their money where their mouth is. And there are certain managers that do that, which is pretty cool. And that is something that is out there. But most people are going to access these through mutual funds or ETFs. I will caution most, most ETFs in this space are garbage. They're not good at all. But there is one that has chops and is a solid selection. 
Again, this is the part in the podcast I cannot recommend and say, hey, just buy this ETF. That'll get me in trouble. I'll get my hand slapped and I cannot do that. But for those doing due diligence, I'll say there's some great educational resources in the show notes. And if you look through those and maybe watch them or read any of the things, it will shorten your search for the right managers that you might want to check out. In my day job at Vincere, obviously part of my role is to do the legwork on this and figure out allocations and how much we want to own and what manager and all that good stuff. But I wanted to make sure that you get these pieces of information and that you get things that have been meaningful to me so that you can you know, look into it and make the decision that's right for you. And the last thing you might be you know, wondering, how much should I own of managed futures? Again, this is going to be the part you hate me, right? It's the, it depends. And that's always the case on, on what it is um, without knowing who you are and, and where you're at and what you're trying to accomplish. What are you solving for? And anyone that knows me will know that I say that a lot. And, you know, are you a practice owner? Are you not, you know, when are you going to retire? Blah, 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 all that stuff, right? But what I'll tell you is, at least 10%. If you're going to allocate to this asset class, put at least 10% in. Anything less is going to be too little to be meaningful. And again, I'm not going to tell you, hey, it should be some other percentage, but at least 10. If you're going to make the decision to allocate, make it meaningful to where it can make a material difference, put in 10%. Again, I would go back and reference that 60-40 blend versus other 60-40 blends and just kind of why and how structurally these things work, how they can be nice complements. So Hopefully this was enjoyable. I did not intend for it to go quite this long, but that was actually a, a really good conversation around commodities, managed futures, and diversification just in general. So I hope you learned a lot. Um, ping me with any questions. And until uh, next time, take care. Thanks for listening to today's show. The comments made on today's show should not be taken as investment, tax, or legal advice. All comments are for educational purposes only. You should consult your team before implementing anything. Isaiah Douglas is a partner of Vincere Wealth Management. Isaiah is registered in the state of Indiana, California, Texas. The biggest compliment you can give to this podcast is to share it with a friend. Reviews help the show get found, and Apple Podcasts is the platform that predominantly is how people listen to the show. If you have three to five minutes, you like the show, please head over to Apple Podcasts, give us an honest rating and review. That'll help more people find the show. For all of today's links and information, head over to veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. There you can subscribe via your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss another episode. Finally, if you'd like more information, insights, and have the ability for your voice to be heard and interact with show guests, join the private Facebook group. You can go to the Veterinary Success Podcast on Facebook or head over to the veterinariansuccesspodcast.com. Scroll all the way to the bottom where it says about your host and then click on the Facebook icon. That'll bring you into the Facebook group. I'll approve you. You'll be in. And then I'd love to hear your questions, feedback, and anything that you'd like to see added to the show. So with all that, thank you so much for listening. I'll be talking again to you soon.